The Old Testament reading is from Isaiah 43, and let me set it up for you a little bit. Isaiah is talking about the first exodus, where God liberated the people of Israel out of slavery from Egypt. And he says, I'm about to do something new and so powerful that you're going to forget about the first exodus even. This new release from exile is going to be amazing. Thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down, they cannot rise. They are extinguished, quenched like a wick. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The wild beast will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches. For I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I should have said this. So the first exodus is out of Egypt, right? And the way to get to the promised land was through the Red Sea. So the way that was made there was by the parting of the waters. The next exodus is going to be the exiles in Babylon being brought back to Jerusalem. And the way that's going to be made there is through the desert. The Arabian desert separates uh, the Levant from uh, Mesopotamia. And so God says, I'm going to make a way in the desert. I'm going to build a highway. I'm going to create rivers and things like that. So that's what's going on with Isaiah 43. The epistle reading is Philippians 3. And Paul at the beginning is going to talk about, he's going to say, I count everything as loss. And he just previously to this said what he is counting loss. It's all the things that he's proud of, that he could be proud of. His uh, intellectual training, his ethnic heritage, his moral standing in the community, these sorts of things. And then he's going to say, I've actually learned to not value those things. Indeed, he says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me His own. Brothers, I don't consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The Holy Gospel according to St. Luke, the 20th chapter. Glory to you, O Lord. And Jesus began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. And when the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I'll send my beloved son. Perhaps they'll respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, 
This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. And when they heard this, they said, Surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them. But they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere, that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. So the sermon text is the Gospel reading. And I'm gonna, so what I want to do today is, uh, I, I want to explain, uh, the background of the Gospel reading and what's going on. And so I'm gonna end up asking you to turn in the Old Testament to, uh, some, uh, passages of scripture to read them with me. You should have a pew Bible in front of you. A lot of you have your phones. I'll let you know what the page is in the pew Bible. I thought, so what I usually do is I just end up reading it. Like if I have something I want to read from the Old Testament that's not in the, uh, you know, the sermon text and it's not printed in the bulletin, I usually just read it to you. But here, I'm going to ask you to turn there. And of course, you don't have to turn there if you don't want to. Uh, it's, it's fine. Like if you just listen to me read it, it's fine. But maybe if you read it along with me, I mean, so the, 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 the reality is that like what I say is not very consequential. It's, I, I actually can't say anything that has the power to change anybody's heart or to rescue us from our own brokenness. But God's word does. And so, uh, maybe this is, maybe this is silliness. But if maybe if we read it together, it'll be more powerful than if you just hear me read it. I'm probably wrong about that. You could probably just listen to it and it's, and it's fine. But, uh, if you turn there too, let's see, let, let's see what happens with that. Let's see if that works. Okay. The, the, uh, the sermon text is this parable, the tenets, which we read from Luke chapter 20. Jesus tells this story about this vineyard owner and guys coming to check on the vineyard who work for the owner. He does not, let me tell you this, this story, nobody is surprised when he tells this story. This is a really common story that, that Jews would tell each other in the first century. It's, a, it's, it's kind of a, a collective story that they would tell to make sense of who they were and what God's plans for them were. So here we go. Uh, I'm going to show you in the Old Testament where this story comes from. If you could turn with me to Isaiah chapter 5, and it's on page 512 of your uh, pew Bibles, Isaiah 5, and I'm going to read it to us. But as you're turning there, let me give you the context of what Jesus is saying back in Luke 20. We didn't read this. Luke 19, Jesus cleanses the temple. He goes in and he shuts the temple down. And he says, this house was designed by God to be a house of prayer for all nations, but you guys have made it a den of brigands. He doesn't say a den of thieves, as though the main issue is the money changers making a little bit too much money when they exchange money. That's actually not the problem. The problem is that they're a den of brigands. And the word there in, in, in 
the word there that he uses is a word for revolutionaries. The two guys who are crucified with Jesus are both called brigands. You don't get crucified in the Roman Empire for being a thief. You will get crucified if you plot revolution against Caesar. And Jesus says, you guys have turned the temple into a den of revolutionaries. You are plotting revolution against Caesar. That is not the plan that God has for your salvation. Me, I'm the plan for your salvation. And he goes in and he shuts the temple down. Purifies the temple. Uh, you know, uh, um, yeah, shuts the temple down. And then the very next story is Pharisees come to Jesus and say, who gives you the authority to do that? Who gives you the authority to shut the temple down? What right do you have to go into Yahweh's temple and close it down? And then Jesus says, I'll tell you, if you tell me, where did John the Baptist authority come from? Did it come from God or did it come from humans? Did he just make, make it up? And then they can't say anything back to him because it says they're afraid that the people will stone them. They're afraid of the people. Now, what's Jesus' question about? It's not just simply, I'm going to ask you this hard question so that I don't have to answer your hard question. What is John the Baptist about? John the Baptist's main job was to announce that after me is coming one, Jesus, who is going to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, right? And now Jesus is asking them, when John said that about me, did that come from God or was John just making it up? Jesus knows that the message of John about Jesus came from God. In other words, Jesus is God's agent. The Pharisees can't say anything about that, and so they're just quiet and let it slide. And at that point, Jesus tells this story about this vineyard. Now look at Isaiah chapter 5. So this is written 600 years before Jesus was born. I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard, Isaiah says. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. God is his, God is the loved one who, who owned this vineyard on this fertile hillside. He dug it up, cleared it of stones, and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. And then he looked, so he did everything he could to like set up this really, really great vineyard. And then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Now, you dwellers in Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done for my vineyard than I've done for it? So I, I, I'm a great vintner. I did everything right. I treated the ground right. I planted the right vines. I protected it with a wall. What more could I have done? And now, uh, when I look for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Verse 5. Now I will tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. And here he just goes goes ahead and explains in verse 7 explicitly what he means. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are the garden of his delight. And he looked for justice, but saw bloodshed, for righteousness, but heard cries of distress. Okay, so in other words, Israel, Judah, is like a vineyard. It's been planted by God to grow fruit, and the fruit that he wants is righteousness and justice. But he didn't get that, and so he let the vineyard go to waste, let the walls fall down, let the wild animals trample on it. This is the story that the Jews in Jesus' day would tell themselves to explain why the Roman Empire is in charge of us. Because we were a vineyard that God planted, but we disobeyed his law, and then he let us go into exile. First the Babylonians, then the Persians, then the Greeks. 
Now in Jesus' day, it's the Romans who are our overlords. One more story. Turn to Psalm chapter 80. This is page 439 in your pew Bible. Psalm 80. He's going to say something really, really similar. Psalm 80 is a prayer that God would come back and restore Israel. That God would return and take care of His vineyard again. Don't don't abandon us like this. Rebuild the walls. Take care of the vines one more time. Psalm 80. And look down at verse uh, 7. Restore us, O God Almighty. Make Your face shine upon us that we may be saved. You brought a vine out of Egypt. And here we go with this story that, that Judah tells itself about who we are. We are the vine of God. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it, and it took root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its boughs to the sea, the Mediterranean, and it shoots as far as the river, the Euphrates, up north in the Fertile Crescent. God, why have you broken down its walls so that all who pass by pick its grapes? Boars from the forest ravage it, and the creatures of the field feed on it. This is all language that would, would have been understand in Jesus' day to be talking about Gentiles. Like the, the, the Gentiles are just animals, and they're feeding on God's vineyard. Why, why haven't you protected it, God? Return to us, O God, o God Almighty. Look down from heaven and see. Watch over this vine. The root your right hand is planted. The sun you have raised up for yourself. Your vine is cut down. It's burned with fire. At your rebuke, your people perish. Now, this is good stuff. Verse 17. Let your hand rest on the man at your right hand, the son of man you've raised up for yourself. Then we will not turn away from you. Revive us and we will call on your name. Restore us, O Lord God Almighty. Make your face shine upon us that we may be saved. Okay, so God, your vineyard has been torn down. The beasts of the field, the pagans, the Gentiles, the Romans are in here feasting on your vineyard. Put your hand on the Son of Man at your right hand and bless Him so that the vineyard will be rebuilt and we and you can come back here and we'll be rescued again. All right, now go back to the Gospel reading. It's in your bulletin in Luke chapter 20. Jesus is starting to tell this story. He's explaining to the Pharisees how it is that I have the authority to cleanse the temple. And He's going to tell this story. He's going to tell this story about a vineyard. This is common. This is a common thing to do: is to tell a story that the whole culture agrees upon. And you tell the story, and usually, if if it's a story that's a normal telling of the story, we're all like, "Okay, that makes sense." But there's a trick that you can do if you want to undermine what the culture thinks about itself, or if you want to undermine values that the culture's the culture has. You can tell a common story, and you can subvert it. You can twist the ending. I'll give you a couple examples here real quick. So, um, last week I mentioned The Godfather. I'll mention it again here too. One of, one of the stories that we as Americans tell us is about uh, the goodness of our governmental system. And the general, I mean, there's always outliers, right? But the general righteousness of people who lead us, uh, our leaders, uh, and uh, like policemen, for instance. Now, one of the things that makes The Godfather uh, shocking when you watch it is that it subverts this story where the government officials are the bad guys, and like I mentioned last week, you end up rooting for the mafia. Right? The, 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 the normal meanings are subverted. There's one great scene in there 
Well, where, where Michael Corleone comes back from exile and he meets up with his girlfriend, Kay, who's going to be his wife. And he's explaining to her, uh, you know, the, the whole family always thought that, not to ruin it for you, that Michael was going to not join the mafia, that he was going to be a good guy. He was smart. He was nice. He was going to be an industry leader or a politician. And he says to his future wife, he says, Kay, I'm going to work for my father now. And she says, but you... That, that, that's, that was never the plan for you. It was never the plan that you were going to do the kind of work he does. And Michael says to her, he says, Kay, my father is no different than any other powerful man or politician. He's no, he uses, uses the phrase, he's no different than any senator or president. And Kay says to him, Michael, you sound so naive. Senators and presidents don't have people killed. And Michael says, Kay, now who sounds naive? That's actually kind of shocking. That's the kind of thing that if you tell that story frequently enough, you're going to find yourself in trouble with the authorities. The story that the people in power are the bad guys. And the people who you've always thought are the bad guys are the good guys. Jesus is going to do something similar in a minute. One more, one more example. Since the Romantic period, mid-1800s, one of the stories that you and I like to tell ourselves is that romantic love is salvific. That if you find that special someone, that if you have that magical kiss, that there'll be fireworks and then your life will be happily ever after. That's a story that we love to tell ourselves. It's the theme behind every single rom-com that's ever been made. Every Disney movie that's ever been made is that there's this magical special someone that you can join with. Ernest Hemingway started writing novels in the 1930s that subverted this. One of the best is, I hate to spoil this for you too. Sorry, Angela, this is probably bad form. So Angela and I love this novel, A Farewell to Arms. It's a classic story of a boy meets girl. And they fall in love. And their life is going to be wonderful. And uh, she gets pregnant. And then in the final scene, she goes to the hospital to deliver this baby that they've had in love. And the baby dies in childbirth. And then the mom dies out of a post-birth medical crisis. And then the man, the main character in the story, the last scene is him walking out of the hospital in the rain. Now, what has Hemingway done? He's got larger fish he wants to fry besides just this. He is subverting the belief, the common American belief, that romance can make you happy. That the perfect ending for your life is romantic love. Now, I'm not going to talk about that. I actually agree with Hemingway, although I think his methods are a little brutal. But I am going to say this. That's a good example of subverting a common story that we tell each other in order to make a different point. And that's what Jesus does. He's going to tell this story of the vineyard. And when he starts to tell it, believe me, everybody knows this story. And they're all thinking in this story, okay, I'm the vineyard. I'm one of the good guys who are trying to get the vineyard set up again. This is the way Jesus tells it. Let me let me uh, read it again to you. A man planted a vineyard and rented it to some farmers and went away for a long time. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And everybody who's hearing this story, Pharisees, common people on the street are saying, that's right. Our forefathers were given, were made into this beautiful vineyard, and then they disobeyed the prophets. This is why they went into exile. God sent prophets to them, and our forefathers mistreated them. That was wrong, and we're going to be different. He sent another servant. But that one also they beat and treated shamefully and sent empty, sent away empty handed. He sent still a third and they wounded him and threw him out. 
And then the owner of the vineyard said, this is God, right, in the, in the analogy. The owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my son, whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. Everybody's still on board. God is someday going to send a Messiah. Psalm 2 says that David is the son of Yahweh. The future Messiah is also going to be, in some sense, Yahweh's son. God is going to send him to liberate us and to reestablish uh, the vineyard. But when the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over. This is the heir, they said. Let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. And now the story is taking a weird twist. Because in the common Jewish retelling of the vineyard story, what would happen is, is that the Messiah would come, push out the pagans, the boars, the wild animals who've been trampling on the vineyard and eating the grapes, and the Messiah would establish once again the walls and build up the vineyard. And now Jesus is saying, actually when the Messiah gets here, we're going to end up killing him. And what's God going to do? Here's what he's going to do. Verse 16, he'll come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. And that's why their response is, may this never be, at the end of verse 16. because and They're saying, no way, that's not how the story goes. The vineyard does not get taken away from us. We actually embrace the Messiah when he shows up. And then Jesus says, if that's so, then what does Psalm 118 mean, which says the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone? Psalm 118 tells this story. In fact, let me, I'll tell you what, let me, let, let me look over there and read it to you. And you can join me if you, join with me if you want to. Psalm 118. We actually, you'll, you'll remember we looked at Psalm 118 a few weeks ago. We were talking about the triumphal entry. It's on page 458. In Psalm 118, Psalm 118 is about going to the temple, the new rebuilt temple. Open for me the gates of righteousness, verse 19 says. I will enter and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous may enter. He, remember, he's, he's, the psalmist is imagining, while he's in exile, he's imagining what the temple's going to look like when we finally get back there and rebuild it and we go in and worship God. I will give you thanks, for you answered me. You've become my salvation. The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this, and it's marvelous in our eyes. We'll come back to that verse when we get back to the gospel reading. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. O Lord, save us. O Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord, the temple, we bless you. The Lord is God. He's made his light shine upon us. With bows in hand, joined in the festal procession up to the horns of the altar. So here's what Jesus is saying. A couple things here. The temple... The vineyard of God, Judah, is not going to be rescued. It's actually going to be judged. God's going to let it continue to be trampled down. You imagine that if you fight against Rome, that if you can somehow be good enough people and rebel against Rome, you can force God to return here and be on your side. And it's not going to happen. The temple's going to be judged. Second, the vineyard's going to be given to others. It's going to be taken away from you and given to others. And I think that what he means is the Romans. The Romans are going to come in here and take over, which they did. In AD 70, they blew the temple up. And uh, a few years later, they built a temple to Jupiter on that site, which stood there for a couple hundred years. This is going to be taken away, and it's going to be given to others. And then here is what he says in verse 17, when he says, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. Everyone who falls in that stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. Here's what he says. There's a certain stone which you have rejected. You don't want to be a part of your vineyard. You don't want to be, you don't want it to be a part here. 
and you're throwing it away. And God is going to take that stone that you've rejected, and he's going to make it a centerpiece in his rebuilding of his temple. The stone that you've rejected. And now you know that he's talking about himself, right? He's explaining what it is that it means that they're going to kill the son. They've rejected the very thing that God has chosen to rescue his people, which is his own son. Now, so for us today, we, of course, are sharing the message of Jesus, the gospel, the good news that God reigns in Jesus Christ. What's going to happen when you do what Jesus did? What's going to happen when you speak the gospel to power? It could be political power. When you go to your political party, whichever one it is, and you say, okay, I'm a member of this political party, but, but on the basis of the gospel of Jesus Christ, I strongly disagree with this, po- with this part of your plank. What's going to happen? Same thing that happened to Jesus. Your party, whichever one it is, is going to step on you and throw you out. If you do not play along with the story that they're trying to tell about how their world works. If the story that you try to tell subverts their world. And it will, because Jesus doesn't stand on the side of any political party. Jesus is the king of the universe. Stands over and against all political parties, all kings, all prime ministers, all authorities. What about if it's not just political power? What about if it's cultural power? What about when you go to the culture around you, whether it's your neighbors or your own family or your coworkers or whatever, and you live a life that is fruit of the gospel? It could be something small. It could be something big. It could be stand, it could be something big, like making a stand for justice and honesty. It could be speaking up against racism in a culture of racism. It could be speaking up against something dishonest at work. It could be something small, too. I think I, I said this to you before recently. But does it strike you like how unbelievers and us too, when we get pulled into this, sucked into this, talk about their families? Does it ever strike you like how broken it is that spouses talk about their spouse? Like, oh, it's just so ridiculous. I'll never understand them. Or about their own children? I just need to get away from them. I just need some me time, man. They're totally dragging me down. Or about their parents? You know, whether they're, you know, the parents that you're living at home with, if you're younger, parents that you have to take care of later on. Is this gospel living to speak of the people that God has called us to be a part of in their lives in that way? As though it's, it's a total burden upon us to live with the people that we're called to live with. This is not gospel living. And I'm telling you, if you talk about your husband or your wife, if you talk about your kids, if you talk about your parents in a way that reflects the vocation that God's called us to in Jesus Christ, you will be considered an outsider. People will look at you like you're speaking a foreign language. It's a huge challenge to live the gospel life in our culture. Two things are going to happen to you. One is you're going to be marginalized at best. Perhaps even persecuted, whatever that means. Because the pattern of Jesus is the pattern that we're going to live in. When Jesus made claims to be the king of the universe, he was killed. When you lay claims to be a servant of the king of the universe, and it reflects the way you talk about your reality, it reflects the way you see the world, it reflects the way you spend your money, it reflects the way you treat other people, it reflects the way you think about your possessions, it reflects the values you have and the way you spend your time and your leisure, you're going to be marginalized. You are going to be, best case scenario, the company weirdo, or the neighborhood weirdo, or the family weirdo. Worst case scenario, perhaps, persecuted. 
But Jesus is not just setting an example of suffering. The suffering that Jesus does, the throwing out of the capstone, is the turning point where all of this injustice is healed and done away with. By saying, I'm going to be, I'm going to live a life of the righteousness of the gospel, you're saying, I subscribe to the fact that Jesus has swallowed up all racism, all injustice, all disgust or irritation with your family members, all misuse of money, all selfishness, all greed. And the persecution that you receive is okay. Not that it's fun, not that you're looking for it, but it's okay because the capstone that's been thrown out is being made the cornerstone of the new building. And the new building is you guys. It's the temple that right now here in Glen Carbon, God is building up in himself. Jesus Christ is the cornerstone, the new building where he wants to live. Amen.